Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody Some come back, don't they? Isn't that Everybody so? You tried to get into the locked drawer so? today, didn't you? you tried How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? The milk-white child of Ravenglass. I wanted to get away from it all. I'd had it up to my back teeth with work, and the boss said to take some time, lower the stress levels, and when I felt better, to come back. He gave me a month, and that was generous of him, and I appreciated it, and I thought he must think something of me to cut me that slack. Scrolling through TripAdvisor, I thought of the Scottish Highlands, or Wales or Ireland, but in the end... While I had abandoned the computer and was flipping through a road atlas one night at home, the endless traffic on the North Circular buzzing outside my window, I saw Ravenglass. I liked the name, so I thought I'd go there. It had the added bonus of a railway station, and I wouldn't have to drive. My nerves had been shredded in that past few months, and I don't think I could have taken the motorways headed round the M25, then feeding myself into the pasta maker at Spaghetti Junction in Birmingham. Ravenglass allowed me to escape all that. Ravenglass seemed to be calling me. It took ages to get there on the train. After reading The Guardian and then The Spectator, I liked to be contrary, and finishing both and flipping through them again to see if I'd missed anything, then eating two packets of crisps, gazing a long while out of the window, staring blankly down the carriage and finally heaving down my bag from the overhead rack, I alighted from the train at the empty railway platform and saw an adjoining miniature steam railway at the station over the line. That was the one that ran down the valley between the mountains. Ravenglass is by the Irish Sea, in case you didn't know. The smell of salt and seaweed invaded my nose as I took the path from the station. I checked the directions to my B&B, the old church house, it was called. My landlady was a Mrs. Nelson. I found it quickly enough. Ravenglass is basically two rows of houses that run along the seafront with a cobbled street between them. The street starts not far from the railway station and ends at the beach. When I saw it, I knew it was exactly what I wanted. The old church house was a prominent building that looked Victorian made of red sandstone. It had a shallow front garden where summer flowers bloomed madly, roses and geraniums and iris and lupins. Mrs. Nelson had a bird feeder out front. My opening the green-painted wooden gate scared off the greenfinches and the blue tits that were feeding there. There, amidst the blooms, I stopped and breathed in, filling my lungs with a mixture of sea air and sweet stocks. It was still light, even at eight o'clock that night, just slightly before midsummer. I rang the doorbell and Mrs. Nelson opened it. I had imagined an old lady in a frock wearing a pinny, but a completely different woman opened the door. She was about forty, with auburn hair and freckles, and cool blue and red framed designer spectacles. She wore denim shorts with sparkly sandals and a loose summer blouse, white, with blue and yellow flowers printed upon it. She reached out a hand. Mr. Jones. I smiled awkwardly. Call me Owen. I'm Sally. Wanna brew? She boiled a kettle on her gas hob. 
She got out a blue teapot with a golden dragon design. It looked Chinese. I thought perhaps Jing De Zhen, though I'm not up to the mark these days on Chinese ceramics. Then Sally grabbed a silver spoon in her left hand, a 1920s-looking gold and red decorated tin tea caddy in her right, and took out three heaped spoonfuls of black, aromatic tea, which she popped into the dragon teapot. One for you, one for me, and one for the pot, she said. When the boiling kettle whistled, Sally poured the steaming water into the teapot and then, after giving it time to mash, as they say up here, made me a cup of tea in a Clarice Cliff teacup that sat on its saucer in front of me. Milk? I nodded. Sally poured the milk from a pot Marian milk jug. None of it matched, but in some way, that added to the charm. I felt suddenly, strangely relaxed, almost serene. It was as if I was being treated to a special Cumbrian tea ceremony. She tipped the jug, dropped several drops and a gulp of milk into my cup, then lifted the milk jug's spout, holding it poised in case I said I wanted more. Enough, she said. I smiled. Thanks. Perfect. Sugar? She stood ready with silver sugar tongs, about to lift an irregular lump of white sugar from the Port Marion bowl. It was the Moss Agate design, never produced in large numbers, but which received high critical acclaim when Susan Williams Ellis designed it in 1961. It was very valuable, and here was my B&B landlady, Sally Nelson, using it every day. You're a collector, I gestured to the jugs and bowls. Sally smiled. I'm an art teacher, but my love is ceramics. Weird. What is? I sat back. I'm a ceramics designer. I work in a commercial pottery in London. I design plates and jugs and things. I grinned. Nothing as special as those you have here. These are valuable. But you use them every day. Sally said their beauty comes from their function. If you don't use them, you rob them of their purpose. Movement in the hall outside caught my eye. I glanced and saw a child peering round the door, a girl, I think. It must be Sally's daughter, I thought. She was very pale and darted her head back when she realised I'd seen her. I went back to studying the tea dishes. We both love ceramics. What a coincidence that I ended up booking here. Sally smiled and finally sat. There are no such things as coincidences, Mr. Jones. Of course, she was a hippie. You could tell that from the clothes she wore and the Buddha on the windowsill and the book on mandalas open face down on the sideboard near the yew wood chopping board with its loaf of artisan bread and pat of yellow organic Cumbrian butter. I'm not a hippie. I'm more practical than that. I work with my hands. Worked with my hands. Mostly it's computers now. But I am a down-to-earth man. If I can't touch it, or at best see it, I doubt its reality. A coincidence is exactly that. There's nothing mystical or meaningful to it. The child in the hall flitted across the doorway again as if she were playing hide-and-seek. She can come in if she wants, I said. No need to be scared of me. Sally smiled again. Who can? She saw I was looking into the hall. Oh, the cat! He's a Tom, Marmaduke. No, the girl. Sally frowned. Girl? I gestured. The little girl in the hall. I thought she was your daughter. She shook her head. My kids are at school. I sat back, 
I was sure I'd seen a little pale girl. When I thought of her, she came more vividly to mind as if she flourished and grew in my imagination, becoming more present and luminous than the brief glimpse of her in the hall. Sally stared at me. I laughed. Now you're going to tell me the house is haunted. A big old ex-vicarage like this is bound to be haunted. I didn't know why I'd said it. I didn't believe in such things. But I bet she did. You're pulling my leg. Her smile, at first hesitant, grew broader. You are a wag, Owen. So it's not haunted. She shook her head. But I've never seen anything. No guests have ever reported anything, and the kids have never talked about ghosts. So much as I like the idea of it being haunted, she put her hand over her heart. I can't honestly say it is. Sorry. Did you want it to be haunted? God, no. That's the last thing. I don't believe in ghosts. But you just saw one. My jaw tightened. I saw a girl. I shrugged. No point getting annoyed. I thought I saw a girl. I don't think so. The only living thing in the house except you right now and me is my big ginger tomcat, and he's very likely asleep on my bed. I slept and saw no ghosts, but that picture of the pale young girl with hair like silver and eyes huge and full of moonlight and cobwebs drifted through my dreams. The girl didn't speak, only stared, and I thought she wanted something. Then I awoke. It was a beautiful morning. Sparrows chirped outside my window. I opened it so I could listen to them and the sound of the waves murmur. A slight breeze shifted the gauzy curtain. I lay until I thought I'd better get a shower than breakfast. I had nothing to do that day, and I thought I would get up early and enjoy doing it. There was another man in the breakfast room sitting on his own table. He looked up and nodded to me. Knife lifted, smeared with egg, fork raised, ready to spear a piece of black pudding. How do, he said. Good, uh, thanks. I sat. Sally bustled in. Full English? I'm vegetarian, should have said. She smiled. No problem. Ovalacto, I nodded. She brought me slices of farmhouse bread cut thick, toasted golden brown with curls of organic butter and Cumbrian heather honey dribbled on and spread with the big silver butter knife. The coffee was organic, fair trade, Guatemalan. The milk was local, organic, naturally. Then I had porridge with more local milk, a drib more honey swirled in. The oats were Scottish. That was fine. Not too many air miles, especially if they came by boat across the Solway Firth. The man at the other table wanted to talk. He was looking at me, waiting for me to meet his eye. Eventually, I did. I'm uh, Taffy. Owen. He sported big whiskers and watery blue eyes. He wore a brown tweed waistcoat with a brown check and yellow tweed jacket that didn't match. Nearly, but not quite. His shirt was white, and I saw he had silver cufflinks visible as he waved his knife and fork while talking. On a holiday? he asked, taking a break. I'm a storyteller. I'd met plenty in my time. But I guessed he meant that was his job, not merely his inclination. Nice, I said, doing the schools as roundabouts, uh, contracted by the county council. I smiled and said before biting my toast, um, sounds interesting. 
Then I bit. It was delicious, a mouthful of paradise, as the bread crunched with melting butter and gooey honey, and I chewed while listening to the storyteller. He said, I do uh, Cumbria mostly, and festivals, and of course North Lancs, North Yorks, uh, closer side of Northumberland, national park centres, etc. I swallowed my toast and took a sip of coffee. What kind of stories do you tell? Folk tales, fairy tales, and embellishments on the truth, twists of history, unrealities and make-believe, all with a strong moral element. A moral element? He looked serious. It's important that the little buggers know how to behave. Uh, the kids? He laughed out loud. That's a good one. Of course the kids. Who did you think I meant the fairies? I sat quietly. He jerked a thumb as if the wall were invisible. I'm at Ravenglass School later. I know Sally. Knew her husband, poor lad. Oh, he died. Was drowned. He pointed at the unseen sea through another wall. Out there. It's treacherous to walk on these sands. Three rivers come to the sea here. The Esk, the Mite and the Ert. This confluence creates a lot of channels and currents. Of course, this area is very isolated. It sits on a promontory sticking out into the sea. Muncaster Castle, at the high bit facing inland. The old Roman port was up there. Again, he pointed through a wall. Romans, I said. Taffy nodded vigorously. Romans, Celts, Vikings, Anglo-Saxons, Irish, pirates, Manx, fishermen. Lots of tales. I'm doing uh, King Eveling today. I smiled in polite interest. Eveling? Never heard of him. He was a Dark Age king of the Britons. They had lots of little kings, sub-regulae, Gildas called them. He appears in the Arthurian stories as King Evelake of Saras, most probably. I'm telling a story about him anyway. You seem to know your stuff. A bit more toast. I have to, old boy. It's my living stories. He raised a finger. But the legend says Eveling was king of the fairies. That Ravenglass was then part of fairyland. Or at least fairyland broke through into the real world here. Its old name was Renglass, which may mean the green promontory. Ringlass in Old Cumbrian. As if he suddenly remembered something, he got up. Oh, sorry, old lad, time and tide and all that. Well, they don't wait for me. Don't know about you. <laughs> and he left in a great bluster of tweedy waves to Sally and brisk nods at me. After he'd gone, I reflected that in Ravenclass, time, if not tide, would wait for me. I had all day to do nothing much, and I loved it. It was the freest I'd felt for years. Sally stood drying knives with her tea towel by the kitchen sink, door open to the breakfast room. Off anywhere nice today? I shrugged. It all seems nice. Yes, it is. You could go on the Lal Ratty. The what? The steam railway. Oh, yes, I saw that. Or up to Muncaster Castle. Yes, uh, that sounds nice. There's a footpath. Go over the footbridge over the railway line, past the bee garden on your right, and stride up through the woods. It's a lovely day for it. So that's the way I went. I fetched my boots and knapsack from my room, put on my shorts, got onto the landing, then remembered my sunglasses and cap. I went back and got them. But as I locked my room and stood there, I had a strange feeling that I was being watched.
I spun round and saw nothing. But as I stepped down the stairs, I thought that with some inner ear, not the natural worldly one, but one more attuned to things mostly unheard and mainly unspoken, I heard a soft voice say, Past is in future, and future is in past. What you do for us today, we do for you tomorrow. I shivered like someone had run a peacock feather up my spine. It was the strangest sensation, and pleasant as it was, it made me quite anxious. But I stood there, hand on the polished banister, and told myself I didn't believe in such things. It was only the stress being lifted from me. It was simply a relief that I didn't have to face my life for a while. The walk up to the castle through the cool woodland was a dream. I strolled along the long drive after buying my entry ticket. The rhododendrons were all out in their glory, and blackbirds warbled from the bushes. Mancaster Castle itself was ancient, massive, and hewn from dark sandstone. With all due respect to the National Trust, who do a great job of preserving the nation's heritage, their places can feel samey and regimented, a sort of corporate version of heritage. But Mancaster was gloriously independent, and even a little eccentric. I enjoyed the human touches and the humour, and the fact that the same family lived there who'd founded the castle in the 1200s. And then I walked back. Sally had offered to cook, and she made a vegetarian tagine, and she and Taffy and me drank organic wine, French, not Cumbrian. I get it from a bloke in Penrith. He has a company called Black Hand Wine. He's an organic winemaker, no sulfites, so no hangover. Of course, that wasn't true but the wine slipped down like fruit punch. Taffy went upstairs to his room to do some work, and that left me with Sally. Would you like to see my studio? I said I would. The wine added to the day added to my pleasant company made me feel agreeable indeed. She was good at pottery. She had a kiln and a potter's wheel and all the other bits and bobs a ceramic artist needs in her brick shed and a long garden on the landward side of the house. It was simple but I had become over-sophisticated and arrogant. When you live in London, you come to believe that nothing worthwhile can originate from anywhere else. Maybe New York or Paris, Berlin or Tokyo at a push, but everywhere else must be second-rate because it's not London. Except Sally's work wasn't second-rate. She wasn't world-shattering, but she was very competent, and her work had real charm. She hitched up and sat on a bench, she motioned for me to sit on her stool. I looked around me, taking in the range and quality of the items she's made. You could sell this, I said. She shrugged. Not fussed. You don't want to sell it. I I've got contacts in galleries in London. I could get you an exhibition. Why? So more people would see your work. So people would buy your work. So you'd be properly rewarded for your talent. She grimaced and took a sip of her organic tempranillo. I do it for me because I enjoy it. I nodded rapidly. Yes, of course, but even so, you could make a name for yourself. I have a name. Sally Nelson, who lives in Ravenglass, part-time art teacher, part-time B&B lady. Do you know her? I smiled. Yes, it's just... She cocked her head. Tell me, Owen, 
And do you like your job? Like it, I sighed. I stopped. I ran my hand through my thinning hair. I used to. I used to love making things. But not now. I said, now? I don't make anything. I come up with designs. We put them through the team. We do market research and focus groups. And in the end, we come up with saleable items. We get them into the best stores. But you don't make them yourself. No, how could I? It's a multi-million pound enterprise worldwide. We ship tens of thousands of items. We have factories in China and Brazil. I laughed. If I had to throw each bowl on the wheel, I gestured to her potter's wheel. I'd never finish, she said. Would you like to make things again? I exhaled. I wouldn't like to make the shit we produce. Then I corrected myself. No, that's not fair. Our products have very high production values. Yes, but the production values aren't high enough to touch your soul. Sally said, you should try making something that isn't designed to position it in the market. You should make something with your hands, just because you want to. And she was right. That was why I was burned out. I'd sold my art to the machine, and the machine gold it all up and spat out the pips. Sally nodded. Let's go back to the house. It's more comfortable. We sat on the sofa, and Sally put on some Nick Drake and then some John Martin, and we talked about colours and clay and what it felt like to form things and mould them with your fingers until something inside told you that you had the shape right, and then you could stop. That night, I dreamed of the milk-white child again, with her long wisps of hair and her eyes like mother of pearl and her lips the colour of chalk. I woke with the moonlight flooding my room. I left the curtains undrawn, and an illumination of ivory spilled in. It came over the carpet and up to the end of the bed, lighting up the chair in the room's corner. And there, sitting in the chair, was a child, the colour of snowflakes and moonbeams, blinking at me with eyes like selenite, through eyelashes fringed with crystal clear as quartz. I watched, amazed, horrified, unable to believe what I saw was real, and the girl child leaned forward and said, Your future is my past. I recall what you will do, and I give you thanks. I will not remember to ask you in future, so what can I give you now in repayment? As I sat, trying to think of an answer, a dream answer, for surely I must be dreaming. The child was gone. She had slipped away like a story when the page is turned and the plot only half remembered. But the page can always be turned back if you know how to do it. I lay awake until dawn, which came early with birdsong, and always the slow shushing of the waves on the sand out of sight behind walls. Then... I slept. I was late for breakfast. Taffy had left already. I walked alone again. I found myself in the woods behind the village, climbing the hill through dense rows of trees. This was Hringlas, the green promontory indeed. At times, I saw the sea behind me, the estuary with its sandbanks and bobbing yachts. But as I went further, there was no more sea, no more mountains to the east. Only trees. The trees went on forever like an ocean, 
and the paths grew wilder and crisscrossed with briars, rosebay willow herb, mugwort and wild rose, until I realized I was lost. I heard the thin reedy notes of the pipes long before I saw the piper. In my vision, it was as if the curtains of a theater were drawn back for the show to begin, and behind the red velvet hangings were painted scenes of far countries. The wood rippled like a curtain, and then everything was more ornate, more vivid, more vibrant. The flowers were huge and alien. Incredible insects buzzed on iridescent wings from orchid to orchid, pollinating them. Strange bobbing birds trilled and hooted from a canopy of unfamiliar foliage. But it was the people that amazed me. A procession wove through this extraordinary English woodland, made so strange and new by their presence. At their head was a king with long white hair and a crown of pearls. He walked with his queen, a stately tall woman with a face as white as alabaster. Her gown was pale, but silver rings studded with gems yellow and red as fire sparkled on her fingers. Behind the king and queen, a graceful troop followed, laughing among themselves, pipers playing on fine fairy pipes, others clicking fingers to strike tiny cymbals that rang out sweet and clear through the woodland glade. There were perhaps twenty adults and ten or so children playing and frolicking behind as their elders walked on. I thought that somehow I was seeing the court of King Eveling and that I had been granted a vision of the other world where the fairy folk still walked abroad. Instinctively, I had crouched when they appeared, but now my stance was painful and needing to stretch my calf, I moved. That was all it took. My movement attracted the attention of twenty heads and all the milk-white eyes. A cry of alarm went up and the fairies disappeared, melting into the leaves, and within a second they were gone. The children were less adept, but they too ran from me, though I meant them no harm. With shrieks of alarm they vanished, and then a cry of pain went up. One of them was injured. I ran to where I'd heard the sound, and there, sprawled among the undergrowth, was a fairy child, only four or five years old if it had been human. It was pale-skinned with pale hair and eyes lustrous and empty as pearls. A metal snare such as some leave out to catch rabbits, was twisted around its ankle, and where the taut wire dug into its flesh was a ring of red. I saw that despite their pale skin, the blood of the fairies was as red as ours. As I reached to help, the child backed away in terror from me, but with gestures I tried to show I wanted to free it and tell it that the snare was nothing to do with me. The child pulled away as far as it could, but that made the wire dig deeper and made it scream, and crystal tears ran hot down its cheeks. Eventually, it lay still and allowed me to release the snare. It seemed not to know how they worked and had been unable to release it itself, whether from ignorance or through pain. I didn't know. I was sure that this was the child I had seen in Sally's house that said its past was my future. It had spoken to me then, but it did not talk now. It merely looked at me with its empty white eyes and blinked tears from its crystal eyelashes 
onto its lily-white cheeks. And then I picked up the child and held it against me as it sobbed. It was light and limp, and I thought I would need to seek medical attention. I carried the milk-white child slumped over my shoulder, my shirt and trousers smeared with blood from its cut leg. I got into Ravenglass, but there was no one close and no one paid me attention as I hurried to Sally's house. I found her in the kitchen. Who's that? Sally said, her eyes wide. I put the child down on the wooden kitchen chair. A child, she had her leg caught in a rabbit snare in the woods when I found her. Sally stared at the pale child, and it looked back at her with pearly eyes that were devoid of any pupils. What's the matter with her? Sally said. Is she an albino? At that moment, attracted by the commotion, Taffy, the storyteller, came into the kitchen. Oh my God, he said. We both turned round. The milk-white child stared at him impassively. Sally said, Owen found the girl in the woods. Unfortunately, she had a leg caught in a trap. Taffy said, That is no human child. I said, How do you know? Taffy said, Because I know the stories of the white folk. She is fairy kin. Sally said, You believe that? She's just an albino girl. Her legs hurt. She stepped over. Here, love, let me look. We can't treat her. She needs to go back to her own kind, Taffy said. Sally shook her head. She's not a fairy, Taffy. You've got confused with your own tales. But I nodded my head. I saw them, I said. Taffy turned his eyes on me. Who? I rubbed my forehead. <laughs> I think I saw the fairy king, Eveling, in the woods. It was like a door opened, and I saw another world. Sally stared bemused, as if she thought both Taffy and I were drunk or drugged. But then she looked at the white-skinned girl. The girl was ethereal and strange. No human child had ever looked like this. If that's true, then you need to put her back, Sally said. Where? In the woods. She'll die, I said. We can't leave her there. She's dying now, Tuffy said. She can't thrive in our world. The snare trapped her and brought her here with its iron. Iron and steel are poison to the fairies. She's sick. Then what can we do? We have to wait until they come to fetch her, Taffy said. I looked at the girl. Already she was languishing. She lay back, weak with her breathing shallow. C can we feed her? Taffy said, well, according to the stories, the white people can only eat white food. White food? How strange. Like what? Egg white and milk. Sally got a glass of milk from the fridge and I held the beaker to the girl's mouth. At first she pushed it away, but she was weak and getting weaker. Some drops of milk fell onto her lips and tentatively she licked them. Taffy cheered. Then she started to drink, though only sips, but enough so that half the glass was soon empty. And so we spent the summer night waiting with the fairy child on the sofa in the living room, feeding her milk while Taffy ate egg yolks. The night stole on us unseen. One minute daylight lingered, and then the pale blue of the summer night fled the sky. Stars appeared, and a great ivory moon rose. The moonlight came in through the window and bathed the child in its wash of light. She stirred, as if revitalized by its cold white glow. But still, no king of the fairies came. And it grew very late, and first Taffy and then Sally went to bed leaving me with the slumbering child. I nodded and dozed, my chin on my chest, and then I opened my eyes 
to see her staring at me. For the first time since I rescued her, she spoke. My father will come soon. The moon illuminated the room, and everything it touched grew mysterious. Though I had not left Sally's house, again I entered an other world, and I heard the soft jingle of bells. And the child looked at the door, and the door opened, and in stepped Eveling, king of the fairies, and with him his fairy wife, Vivian. And Vivian bent down, and the red and yellow gems in her silver rings gleamed in the pale moonlight, and she scooped up her daughter. King Eveling turned to me and said, Thank you for saving my daughter. Trapped with iron in the day world, she would have wasted away and died if not for you. I said, It was the least I could do. He studied my face. What gift would you have of me? Beautiful as he was, I feared him. Stepping back, I shrugged. I don't need a reward. Eveling, king of the fairies, said, but you shall have one, nevertheless. He bent forward and whispered in my ear, and I dreamed on, and my dream twisted and changed, and only when I woke did I realize that I had slept for several hours. Sally came down in a dressing gown. She's gone, she said. But I had seen something on the seat where the girl had been, so I went over and saw it was a beaker made of porcelain, but porcelain so pale and silvered that it looked like mother of pearl and moonlight had been mixed into it. What's that? Sally said. It's for me, I said. It's beautiful, Sally said, staring as I turned the beaker in my fingers. I gazed at it in silence. I was so quiet that Sally studied me frowning, but also faintly smiling. Finally, I said, I can make something like this. Sally put her hand on mine. Then, you should. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies. That was The Milk White Child of Ravenglass by Tony Walker. That's me. And I'll tell you why. This was one of my more cumbering ghost stories. When I'm listening to it, I didn't listen to it all, to be fair. I skimmed listened to it because I wrote it and I edited it, and I'm pretty familiar with the story. This was a recording I did for the Audible book. Um, I did it with a m- much more expensive microphone than this one, but there's a, a weird noise on it when I hear it back, and I'm very disappointed. I hadn't realised that the first time, and I don't know why. So I apologize for that. Um, the reason I'm giving you this, and for those who bought the book, I apologize, but I hope you'll forgive me. Man has to make a living. So this is going out free, but if you wanted to buy the book and you haven't, please feel free. I think it's in my Kofi store, the whole lot of it. So it's actually a lot cheaper than buying it from Audible. So have a look at that. Kofi, I think I'm Barkid, B-A-R-C-U-D on Kofi, but I might be Tony Walker. Anyway, there's links in in the notes. Don't worry about that if you're desperate to get it. So, um, yeah, so why am I doing it? Why am I doing this now? Well, I'm going away to America for a couple of weeks and I need, again, because it's summer and I need to get some recordings in the can. So I've been recording extra, but and there are more extra stories coming out and they'll come out, but I, I, I just needed one more and I thought, I'll tell you what, I'll do one of mine. And I was thinking about which one will I do? And I thought, well, I'm, I'm quite fond of this. 
I think I've been reading a lot of Arthur Macken at the time, you know, the white people and things like that, about the, um, the strange ethereal fairy folk. The legend of King Eveling, the king of the fairies who lived at Ravenglass, is, is a real legend, if that makes any sense. So it is a historical legend that people used to tell in the area, so I didn't make that bit up. Uh, I made pretty much the rest of it up. And, of course, the story's about a man who's um, burned out by uh, corporate living, living in a city, and this is... So it's a very classically romantic theme, romantic with a big R, you know, words with people like that, in that contact with nature, a is refreshing, but also nature is has further than the material to offer you. So it's not just about what you can get from nature. There is a spiritual renewal as well. So there we are. So those of you who don't like that, just skip it over. But, you know, um, I, <laughs> I, tr I try to hide my hippiness from people. I'm not sure I've managed it, but certainly I do believe in the, the, the power of nature. And I'm not sure I'm convinced that there are real fairies wandering around the, or what, what are you going to call them? Not things with little wings, but uh, spiritual beings in the in the haunted woodlands of England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland, and France and anywhere else you want to go, Rome, anywhere, Appalachians, you know. But uh, I'm not unconvinced either, so I've got an open mind on it. So there we are. I like the story. I, I like that message that, listen, you've got to go with your heart, dude. Not an original theme. It is a classically romantic theme. Ravenglass really is like that. Uh, on, a, on, a, on a summer's day, it's a very small village in the middle of nowhere. You've got the big mountains to your, big for us, uh, to your right, and then you've got the, the beach to your left, west and east. Uh, and uh, next thing is Ireland over the way. So it was, and uh, although they give you many uh, etymologies for the name of Ravenglass, I'm pretty sure that it is Rhinglass, Rhinglass, uh, as it appears in the old manuscripts, meaning the green promontory, which is exactly what it is. So that's pretty much it, really. It's it's the heat wave here. It's the second day of the heat wave. Apparently, the hottest day that's going to ever be ever in England so far. So um, I, my recording studio, such as it is, my den is at the top of the house, and it's in the roof space. So there's no insulation. The winter it's really cold, and I shiver. I hope you appreciate the efforts uh, and the, and the tr trials and tribulations I go through. I shiver in the winter, and I'm pretty hot now, and it's only morning. So I'm gonna. Get this in a can. I hope you're all well. I'll be in touch when I'm back. And of course, you will be listening to this at various times and I will either be back or, or I won't be back and who knows what's going to happen. But anyway, all be well. Stay safe. Stay cool. Stay warm. Stay happy. Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Isn't that so?